wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. You're listening to A Quirky Journey, the healthy family podcast with your hosts, Joe Witten and Fuad Kassab. Another fantastic episode of A Quirky Journey is coming up, but before we get started, if you are in Adelaide on the 30th of January, come and see me, Fuad Kassab, at Burnside Hall in Tasmore at 7pm. I've been invited to come and speak by Dr. Brett Hill of That Paleo Show. You can purchase your tickets at www.findingthewildwithin.eventbrite.com.au and if you use the code FUAD, F-O-U-A-D, you get two tickets for the price of one. If you are in Brisbane on the 21st or 22nd of February, come see me and Joe at one of our awesome seminars. Three hours of talking all things health and we also demo six recipes from our best-selling cookbook, Life-Changing Food. We have four sessions going on, so check out the times at quirkycooking.com.au and click on the events tab. All these links are also available through the show notes, so go on to the wellness couch and uh, look at this podcast and you'll see the links there for both the event at Adelaide and in Brisbane. Uh, We have a special episode for you today about LCHF, the low-carb, high-fat diet. We're interviewing Christine Cronau, who really did an awesome job covering this topic. I have a special love for this topic. I lost 30 kilos eating this way, and I love Christine's whole food approach, as it is completely in line with what Joe and I talk about. This is a really, really excellent uh, podcast and interview with Christine. She did an amazing job, and uh, wow, you're going to really love this one. Um, She will get into all things LCHF and talks about healthy, nutritious whole foods that have such a profound deep impact on the body and uh, you're going to learn so much so if this is an episode that interests you or you love it make sure that you uh, check it out also share it with your friends and family because there's so much there and now we will move on to the show straight away Welcome to A Quirky Journey. This is your host, Fuad Kassab. Unfortunately, my co-host, Joe Witten, isn't here with me today. She's feeling a little bit under the weather and her body's asking for a little bit of rest. And it's uh, very much deserved. So I'm hoping she's taking a bit of time to relax and to give her body the rest that it needs. I'm very happy because I don't get interrupted every five minutes. So that's really good. And uh, I get to chat about a really awesome topic that's been incredible for my life and my own health journey. And it's uh, the low-carb, high-fat approach. Today, uh, we have a great guest, uh, Christine Cronau. Christine is a nutritionist, best-selling author and speaker. After struggling with her own weight and health, Christine transformed her body and her health and spent over 10 years researching the facts about food and fats. The results are evident in her engaging, groundbreaking books about dietary truths that have been ignored by conventional health authorities. Christine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Really excited to have you. You're very welcome. Um, Let's kick it off by a very simple question. I'd love to to know what you had for breakfast today. Oh, well, that's a great question, Uh, especially since I didn't know it was coming. (laughs) So I had four fried eggs in butter and I had two slices of bacon and the bacon was free-range organic. Awesome. That sounds like my kind of breakfast. So just perfect. Hey, and this is uh, really going to lead into the conversation because if the listeners aren't new to this topic, they're going to be surprised by the amount of saturated fat that you have in your breakfast. (laughs) And uh, don't worry, guys, no one's going to die from a heart attack anytime soon about this. So uh, Christine, you've been uh, a leading voice in the low carb, high fat movement for a long time. I I remember meeting you and your family in 2014 and you came to my uh, restaurant chickpea in Summerhill. We had a conversation about low-carb, high-fat back then. I'm not sure if you remember, but uh, this was this uh, crazy idea that fats are actually good for us. And that's the idea that I came across myself in 2011 and I lost 30 kilos uh, while I was eating a low-carb paleo diet. Now the tide seems to have turned and uh, the fat revolution, which is a a key phrase of yours, is truly on its way and uh, low-carb, high-fat movement has taken off. So tell me, how do you feel now that uh, you don't have to fight as harshly probably to convince people that this is uh, not such a great, uh, crazy idea, I guess? Yeah. 
Well, firstly, I do remember that. It was an amazing meal at your restaurant. I, I still remember the meal. It was fantastic. And it was so great to go somewhere and eat real food and not have to worry about what was in the ingredients, etc. So that was lovely. Oh, but yes, I mean, the tide is definitely changing and, uh, you know, it's slow. We keep ticking away at it bit by bit, but you definitely see more of this around it. It's become more accepted. People don't get so shocked now when you say that fat is actually good for you. I remember when I first started changing my own diet around 15 years ago and you could practically be lynched for saying <laughs> that saturated fat was good for you. You know, it was just shocking and but of course now you do see bits and pieces in the media you do see people talking about it and at least many people have heard of it even if they haven't accepted it they've at least heard of it so it's not quite a shock so uh, you come from a different background to me i'm a software engineer i came to this just out of desperation with my own health and uh, i i gave this uh low carb high fat thing I tried just because it was kind of like my last resort and I didn't really have any other options I tried yo-yo dieting for most of my life um, but you're a, a nutritionist and that means that you've been trained in this conventional wisdom to be eating a low fat diet and you've you've had to overcome this training tell me about your story how how you came to change your views and how what happened how could you um, break out of that mold when we see so many people still stuck in it, especially when they've been trained for so long with this kind of conventional wisdom, they practice it with their uh, patients, but they don't see the results, but they stick to it. I'd love to see how you came to it. Well, actually, you might be surprised to learn that my background's not dissimilar to yours in the fact that I wasn't actually a nutritionist when I came across low-carb, high-fat. And in fact, I was working... Uh, with software engineers. No way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Well, I was, <laughs> <laughs> so I was a technical author, so I was writing, but I was writing computer manuals, etc., etc. Yeah. So you'll know all about that. Yeah. But what happened to me was I was doing the low-fat thing. I was doing, you know, uh, the conventional thing, trying to eat tons of whole grains, etc. And if I go right back. I actually grew up very, very low fat. Uh, we were quite poor as a family when we were growing up. And funnily enough, we, you know, when my mother and father had enough uh, money to put quality food on the table, for example, eggs, we threw away our egg yolks. Yes. So, I mean, that's the insanity of the low fat era is that you have these small malnourished children throwing away the most nutrient-dense part of their food. Mm. And it's just crazy. And in fact, to show how crazy it is in the different cultures, etc. I remember visiting a family friend when I was young. My sister and I went and it was this lovely Greek lady and she gave us eggs for breakfast and they were boiled eggs. And we, you know, just like we'd been taught, we very carefully ate the whites and left the yolks on the plate. And she just about lost it. She yeah. could not understand what, what we were doing. And, of course, if you haven't come from that low-fat dieting sort of background, then it does seem completely insane. Yes, absolutely. But long story short, my um, I grew up quite thin because, of course, we were a little bit malnourished. When I hit around 18, I started gaining weight. I managed my weight. You know, I would go on diets. I would try to eat less. So I'd cut my fat, etc. And I yo-yoed back and forth for a while. And then I decided eventually to become super healthy, go low-fat vegetarian, and I eventually even completely cut my butter thinking, it's saturated fat, I've got to get rid of all of it. Wow. And I did actually lose weight and I thought, oh, I finally found the secret. But unfortunately, my health took a rapid decline and I ended up with all kinds of conditions. I had, um, you know, imbalanced hormones, I had insulin resistance, I had underactive thyroid, chronic fatigue, you know, the list went on, IBS. And, you know, I thought if I'm eating such a healthy diet, what is going on? And I was lucky enough to have, you know, it was literally a five-minute conversation with a friend of mine who was a GP and she said to me, 
that she'd been doing some research that indicated we should be eating more saturated fat. And I thought, more saturated fat? That's insane, <laughs> you know. Everyone knows that you should be reducing fat in your diet, you know. But something about it piqued my interest. I went and had a look. I had a look at Western prices, uh, stuff from back in the 1930s, which was quite interesting. Yes. And, you know, the more I looked at it, the more it made sense to me that actually the diet I was on, which was my whole grain cereals for breakfast with soy milk, was actually not very natural at all and certainly couldn't have been done back in hunter-gatherer days. So I did more research and went to see a low-carb, high-fat nutritionist and completely changed my diet and it completely transformed my health. And initially I did gain a little bit of weight because, you know, my thyroid was slow. You know, I've been such so low fat for so long. This is very common, you know, when when we've been dieting and then we start eating normally again, it's normal for our body to try and grab everything it can and gain a little bit of weight, which is why people tend to yo-yo so much. But after that initial period where it all calmed down, I haven't had to think about my weight now for 15 years. And I was able to get rid of all my health conditions. So for me, it was life-changing. Wow. And um, 15 years later, you you haven't put on the weight. It's not like a fat diet. They say that right. you put on the weight within a, the first year or two after you're done with it and everything's going to come yeah. back after that. So it's really showing how biocompatible this way of eating is. Um, I'm really interested in uh, how we got to this place and I'd love to see and share with our listeners how is it that we could have been so wrong about eating and how is it possible that saturated fat is actually good for us? How is it possible that eating the low-fat way with the soy and the grains and all that kind of stuff that seems so plausible from the calorie perspective, it seems so plausible from uh, the idea that uh, a veg vegetarian diet would be better for you just from this kind of uh, way that the media has drawn these things as well. I'd love to know how we got here and um, given, given us the historical perspective on this. Well, it's a very long and sad story, unfortunately, but to try and make it a little bit shorter, mm -hmm. I mean, we've been eating... Fat, especially saturated fat for thousands of years and thriving on it in fact it's only been very new that we've decided that we could simply cut fat out of our diet so if we go back and look at the 1800s etc I've got a fantastic cookbook that was written back in those days and if you look through it their diet was based on meat and fat and they also had vegetables when they could get them you know that wasn't even uh, a major part of the diet went in certain places and at certain times they, they did it when they could get it. And, you know, they certainly didn't fear fat. They milked cows at certain times of the day to try and optimise the fat. You know, they right. talked about fat. They talked about butter being wholesome and nutritious. There was none of this fear of fat. So they didn't try and, and cut it out of their diet. In fact, they tried to have as much as they could really because it was an energy source. But what happened was our diet did start changing. So, for example, in the early 1800s, sugar wasn't really available. It was something that was only available to the rich. It became more affordable around 1830. And at that time, once sugar did start become more, becoming more affordable, our diet did start changing. And then in the late 1800s, uh, they started introducing convenience foods such as cereals. So, Suddenly, for the first time, instead of cooking your breakfast, you could make a 30-second breakfast and have cereal. Mm. And so, of course, these convenience foods started taking over. Between 1890 and 1920, sugar consumption doubled, and it has never stopped. It just keeps going up and up and up. And so our diet did change, and we did start seeing things change with our health as well. For example, heart disease, the first documented case of a heart attack was 1926. We don't realise, yeah, we don't realise that it wasn't a thing. You know, I'm sure it was around, there's some documented cases of arterial plaque uh, back in the Egyptian days, for example, they ate grains. But really, it wasn't common and 
even in 1926, once it was discovered and identified and diagnosed and the doctors became aware of it, they ignored it because it just wasn't an issue they were seeing in their clinic. Mm -hmm. But if you fast forward uh, then... Epidemic proportions at the time, like it is today. Yeah, that's right. It was very, very rare. Mm -hmm. And... But of course, when you got to the 1950s, heart disease was said to be skyrocketing. And so you had all the scientists scrambling, trying to figure out what the heck was going on. And they were trying to find the cause of it. Now, there were actually a few theories. One of them was sugar, actually. Uh, and one of them was saturated fat. Now, what we've discovered quite recently, actually, they did a study and they had a look back at industry documents. And Harvard scientists were actually paid by the sugar industry yes. to shift the blame yeah. from sugar onto fat. Mm. And, of course, they did that very successfully because, really, after that, people were not talking about sugar as a risk for heart disease. Yeah. But, of course, everyone was talking about fat being a risk for heart disease. Uh, and, you know, back in the 1950s, Ansel Keys was a biochemist who first presented this idea of saturated fat being the cause. But also what few people know is that when he did present this to the World Health Organization, he was practically laughed at because he had no scientific backing for this. And his own friend said that that was the motivation for him to then go out and do what is now the, the famous seven-country study. Yes. And what that showed was that... In seven countries, the more saturated fat we ate, the more heart disease. But unfortunately, he actually had data from 22 or so countries and the other countries that he excluded showed the opposite trend. So all the data together showed no correlation between saturated fat intake and heart disease. However, he just presented that those seven countries. Right, so for instance, he would look at, say, Japan and France and see that Japan yeah. was a, a low-fat, uh, high-carb-eating country and they had no problems with heart disease. And in France, they ate a lot of fat and they had no problems with heart disease. And he kept Japan in and eliminated France, something along those lines. Exactly. Is that what I'm saying? Okay, exactly. right. So just to back up his idea because he was so convinced that it's true. Yeah. Right, yeah. okay. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and... And actually, what's interesting is uh, the American Heart Association did not initially accept this because they wanted to see a randomised control trial, which they should have. You know, that's, yes. that's exactly what you, you would want to see to try and identify the cause of something. Yes, and if you're going However, to create, like, national guidelines around eating as yeah, well. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But what happened was that a few years on they changed their position and it wasn't because they'd seen a randomised controlled trial, it was because the members of the American Heart Association had changed and one of the new members, in fact, was Ansel Keys. Oh, gosh. Right. Yes, yeah, so you can see where this is going. Yeah. Eventually, um, yes, it became more accepted that saturated fat intake was the problem. Um, by the time it got to 1977, they actually convened a committee called the McGovern Committee to decide once and for all what, were they, what they were going to tell the American public. And, in fact, it was this committee that formed the very first dietary guidelines, low-fat dietary guidelines. Mm -hmm. Now, in this committee meeting, there were scientists there pleading with Senator McGovern saying, can we please wait until there's evidence, until we make these announcements to the American public? And he said, we as senators don't have the luxury that a research scientist does of waiting until every last shred of evidence is in. Mm. So, wow. you know, here we are all thinking all this time that this low-fat idea has been based on evidence. It never has. Yes. They've never been able to prove it. And still today, they've never proven it. Mm. 
So add on top of that the fact that at that point in time, we are able to produce grains in such excessive quantities that we can feed almost an entire world and make it a global commodity. Yeah. And we can make it yeah. such an attractive thing that if we tell people that this is the best food for you to eat and it's shelf-stable, it can be transported, it can yeah. be sold for a lot of yeah. money, all you're doing is pouring fossil fuels on it, like or uh, not fossil fuels, but like the uh, uh, fertilizer, fertilizers made from fossil fuels. So it was a perfect storm for all this to happen and uh, to sell the world the idea that uh, the food that they've been eating for thousands of years is actually bad for them and hey, buy our product. Yeah. Look at marketing as well. Absolutely. Really and crazy. in fact, that, that's been the driver of this whole thing yeah. because, you know, like I mentioned previously, where the sugar industry paid Harvard scientists to shift the brain from sugar to fat, uh, it's been the same with corn oil and mm. all the big grain producers, etc., etc. They all ran strong campaigns against saturated fat so that all of that could be replaced with their product. Yeah, it's, um, this is a topic that we'll get into at, at some point, maybe maybe now, um, the, the idea of good fats and bad fats, because that is somewhat in the vernacular now. We talk about good fats and quite often someone says good fats and they think of avocados and that's pretty much where they leave it or olive oil. Yeah. But um, yeah. you and I have a different perspective on that. So I'd love to uh, give the listeners a bit of a background on what you think a good fat is and what a bad fat is. Well, I sort of look at it completely differently to conventional, conventional wisdom with good and bad fat. To me, a good fat is a natural fat. Mm. So things like butter, coconut oil, animal fat, and I know animal fat, I used to try and avoid saying it <laughs> because, <Yes. laughs> because it got such a strong reaction. But interestingly, I mean, this whole idea of good and bad fat has been so distorted that people who are talking about it don't even understand the concept. For example, if you look at avocado, if you look at olive oil, they have saturated fat in them. They're both about 14% saturated. Yes. So a lot of people don't realize that if they only consume olive oil or avocado oil, that they're still consuming saturated fat. They're not cutting it out of their diet because every natural fat is a mixture of polyunsaturated, monounsaturated, and saturated. And in fact, if you look at animal fat, so lard, for example, is much more unsaturated than saturated. But this is something that they don't tell you. Yes. Yeah, it's especially uh, if it comes from really healthy pasture-fed animals. So the yeah. ones that have been feeding grains, they'll have a lot more omega-6s, the polyunsaturates, which is the stuff that we see um, being sold very cheaply now in these kind of chemically engineered uh, vegetable oils or canola, soybean, rice bran, that yeah. kind of stuff. And um, these oils have a lot of problems associated with them. Can you maybe tell us, why something that has the heart foundation take like a corn oil is actually bad for us? Well, unfortunately, uh, those oils that they produce, they're highly industrially processed. So they use very high temperatures and processes of often chemicals to produce this oil. And so by the time it's finished, it's actually quite highly damaged and oxidized. And it continues to oxidize further once it's on the shelf. And unfortunately, these oils do all kinds of terrible things to our body. For example, you know, if you look at the cell membrane, the cell membrane is made up largely of fat. And we need to eat healthy fats to keep our cell membrane strong and healthy. But when we eat damaged fats like vegetable oils, those fats actually get into that cell membrane and make it weak. And then our cell membrane actually starts leaking and it's impossible to keep the cell hydrated. And not only does that cause premature aging, which is because all your cells are shriveling, uh, it also causes all kinds of disease. Yeah. And uh, this oxidization is similar to rusting, I would imagine, in the body. So like the body starts aging and damaging and then yeah. as you do that for years and years, your cell membranes are pretty much made predominantly from these oxidated uh, yeah. oils and fats. So um, the, 
one of the issues that we uh, face is when we talk about things like saturated fat, first of all, the word saturated disgusts people for some reason. They think, you know, that's a terrible <laughs> term. Um, but then um, they, they say, well, you know, whenever someone has, say, an arterial uh, blockage and we look into their arteries and they've had a heart attack, we see saturated fat and cholesterol, and that means that they're responsible for this person dying from a heart attack. And we don't see canola oil and vegetable oil. What's the deal? Well, how come? How come? It seems like the, you know, the uh, murderer is at the scene of the crime here. So maybe you can uh, explore that idea. Well, we've kind of gotten this this whole idea backwards because it's not saturated fat that is clogging our arteries, and in fact. If you look at it from the perspective of biochemistry, when we eat a lot of sugar, for example, it changes the consistency of our blood. It becomes, uh, you know, quite sticky and we end up with issues with that. But the other problem is that we end up with a lot of free calcium in our body. And when we get that free calcium, it goes around when calcium isn't bound to something, it starts calcifying things. So you end up with calcium on your joints, which is arthritis. You get calcium in your gallbladder, which is gallstones, kidney mm. stones, heart valves, arteries. So, I mean, it's a very complicated issue, but really it's not saturated fat. That's the problem. And the other thing, the other big villain that they've talked about is cholesterol. Well, interestingly, uh, cholesterol heals. Cholesterol is not the bad guy. And in fact, when you're looking at good cholesterol and bad cholesterol, there's really no good and bad cholesterol. It's all cholesterol. One travels one way in the body. And in fact, the LDL and the HDL is not cholesterol at all. It's a lipoprotein that carries cholesterol one way or carries cholesterol the other way. And that's how simple it is. So how can one be good and one be bad? Yeah, we, li we like these kinds of uh, dualities. Yeah. No worldview, you know. Like, with, uh, applying morality to the bodily function is, is pretty. Yeah, I know. Funny. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like our body is trying to kill us, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the fact is, nature is not. You know, nature knows what it's doing. But it's when we've started monkeying with things, we've started taking fat out of our diet. We've started eating too much carbohydrate, too much sugar. And in fact, if you look at it, if you look at the studies, uh, people who are having heart attacks, it shows that around 70% or 75% do not have high cholesterol anymore. Yes. Because we've become very good at lowering cholesterol, but it's not necessarily preventing heart attacks. But you can probably guarantee that most of them will have high blood sugar. Yes, and, and that then creates a state of inflammation in the body and in relation to the calcium issue that you were talking about, yeah. which which then the cholesterol gets sent out to heal? Is that its function yeah, is to heal? That's that kind right. Of so if we, yes, if we have damage in our arteries, then the cholesterol tries to heal that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, cholesterol is an amazing healer. And, in fact, if you're looking at your own blood cholesterol, for example, I know that if I... Uh, go and have a cholesterol test and I've come down with the cold that morning or if I've fallen down and hurt, my, you know, hurt myself and I've got inflammation, then my cholesterol is going to be up when I have that test. Yes. You know, that doesn't mean that my cholesterol is up all the time. It's it fluctuates. Like it something. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, yeah, the reading isn't... Um, like you can't have a long-term reading of cholesterol when you do it at a point in time. It is just that at a point in time. And, and then so yeah. much uh, advice gets given and maybe statins get prescribed to a person who might just have be slightly sick that day when they did that blood test and they're now being, uh, they're shutting down the liver from producing this uh, really healing molecule. Um, Absolutely. I'll take a step back because we're kind of zooming in a little bit. I, I like doing that too, and maybe we'll zoom back in. But um, let's talk low carb, high fat. What what does it look like? What's uh, what's that kind of diet like when when you prescribe it? When you talk to people about it, what do you tell people to eat? Well, basically, we want to go back to eating real food. And when it comes to carbohydrates, why do we have to go low carb? Well, carbohydrates in themselves are not bad, 
but the human body can only handle a certain amount. So mm. we can only generally store about 500 grams of glycogen at once, which is our stored form of glucose. That's not very much. And it will vary for, from person to person, you know, depending on how tall they are, how much exercise they do, etc. But pretty much if we eat more carbohydrate and sugar than, than we can store in glucose, then we have to store it as fat. And we also end up with problems with high blood sugar, etc., etc., and other metabolic conditions. So while carbohydrates aren't bad, we do kind of have a limit as, as humans as how much we can consume. Mm -hmm. And of course, it wasn't an issue back in the day because they were harder to get. Carbohydrates weren't readily available. So if you look at the hunter-gatherers, their main source of food was meat and fat. Yes. And, you know, some, some cultures ate just meat and fat, like the Inuit, for example. They, they were able to eat fish, blubber, and meat. And that was their entire diet. And mm. what few people understand is that that is extremely nutrient dense. So protein fat is very nutrient dense. Mm. And in fact, when we start cutting fat out of our diet, we cut a lot of nutrients that we actually need. And that's when we start to see underactive thyroid and brain dysfunction and just about, you know, every bodily function needs fat to, to actually function optimally. So we end up with all kinds of deficiencies when we cut fat out of our diet. So, so then you start eating a lower carbohydrate diet, or that's a, a whole food diet. Do you yeah. put much emphasis on fiber, for instance? Well, fiber is very interesting, actually. And of course, most people who are low carb, high fat do eat, you know, plenty of green vegetables, etc. And of course, I do mention that some societies survive without green vegetables and they did so perfectly well. However, it's, you know, they are healthy foods. Vegetables are very healthy and they add a lot of vibrancy and color and uh, interest to your diet as well. So most people do get quite a lot of soluble fiber in a low carb, high fat diet. Mm. However, this idea that we need insoluble fiber in our diet is actually quite damaging because you know, many of us have spent years trying to use brains and, and brands, etc. And what happens is our bowel actually becomes fibre dependent. And then we need more and more of it to keep ourselves regular, etc. But what few people know is the way that fibre does keep people regular. And that is that it's called roughage for a reason. It comes through and it actually tears little holes in the bowel wall, which releases the mucus that helps everything pass through. How does that sound? Mm, yeah, wow. Not good. No. So what happens is, and the scientists know about this, but they just accept it. They think, oh, well, that's how it's meant to work. But unfortunately, it's actually quite damaging and... You know, not only to be, become fibre dependent, but it's actually quite uh, damaging to our bowel. So, yes, sometimes when people start a low-carb, high-fat diet, you know, one of the criticisms is that it causes constipation. Well, it's actually not low-carb, high-fat that causes constipation. It's this previous fibre damage. Right. So, so many people have to actually support their bowel and, and try and heal the bowel while they transition to low-carb, high-fat. So then when the transition is made, the, the digestion continues as it was even better and people can eliminate easily without the need of that insoluble fiber? Yes, I mean, most people, for example, those with the most fat in their diet often have the healthiest bowel. Right. If someone has a lot of previous fiber damage, then it might take them uh, quite a while of support. Okay. You know, for example, I often tell people to take magnesium. Magnesium simply draws water to the bowel, so that can just help everything through while their bowel is recovering from previous. So, like magnesium bars or pills, like um, no, just uh, like a powdered magnesium, for yeah. example, uh, mm -hmm. ethical nutrient magnesium, yes. etc. Okay. So those magnesiums, not only are they good for the bowel, but they're also good for all sorts of other things, you know, keeping our electrolyte balance, etc. 
All right, so this brings me to another point with regards to fiber and the relationship to the microbiome. And I'm wondering, how does the microbiome change in response to a low-carb, high-fat diet, especially that we know certain uh, types of microbes in our gut, which are, you know, we call beneficial, require a certain amount of uh, fiber to come into the system. So how does that work? That's a a very interesting uh, question. So uh, there's a lot of talk about whether we need uh, starches or what they call good starch, healthy starch for, Mm -hmm. you know, our prebiotics, so something to feed our probiotics. Yeah. Uh, but actually, if you're trying to be super low carb and you're not wanting to use starches like potato, etc., you can do the same thing with uh, sauerkraut because sauerkraut is a prebiotic and a probiotic. So yeah. one of the best prebiotics is raw cabbage. Mm-hmm. And so then you've got your sauerkraut, which is raw cabbage, and it's also a probiotic with all those beneficial bacteria. So one of the really quick and easy ways to balance all of that is to take daily sauerkraut. But it has to be a proper, you know, properly fermented sauerkraut, not... Raw and... Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. And and this is the entire message we give to people here is that, you know, you have to be eating real food, prepared traditionally. Yeah. Yeah. And... um, This this is a like su- such a deep topic. We can talk about it for so long, and I want to really get into this idea of calories and um, versus um, the the insulin hypothesis and how is it that we can actually eat four eggs with butter for and cream for yeah. breakfast, and then what are you having for lunch? I'm guessing some steak with a bit of butter and a bit of like just a nice salad on the side or something like that. Or yeah, or, yeah. yeah I, I tend to have you know for lunch I tend to have either some more eggs or some meat uh, with salad or vegetable. And then for dinner, I kind of do the same, some sort of meat or egg dish with uh, vegetables or salad. So, yes, um, you know, certainly a lot more fat that, than would be recommended by a conventional nutritionist. That's yeah, and people freak out because I don't know, I can't even remember, but they say something like a gram of fat has nine calories and... Yeah. Yeah. Four or something. Not, like I've never really cared yeah. about that. But like when I started losing weight on a high fat diet, I uh, I wanted to count my calories, and I I think I counted yeah. something like four thousand in one day. Yeah. You know, and I was losing yeah. fat on that, and yeah. it's crazy because for me to actually lose weight before that, I was having to go down to like six, seven hundred a day. Mm-hmm. So like starvation, uh, as opposed to this kind of extreme nourishment. And with all those calories, I should have put on a lot of weight if that idea of calories in calories out actually were true, but I, I didn't, and I yeah. lost 30 kilos. So can you explain the mechanism? Well, that's the key. If that was true, then you would have gained weight, but it's not true, so <laughs> that's why you didn't. So when it comes to calories, it's actually a completely nonsensical idea because if you look at calories, you have certain calories act differently in the body. For example, fat does have twice the calories of carbohydrates. And this is why, um, you know, everyone's so afraid of it. And sugar has half the calories <coughs> of, carb- of uh, fat. However, it's more likely to store fat on your body, whereas fat is the least likely n- nutrient to store fat in your body. So you have to look at how a calorie is acting biochemically rather than how much the calorie is. You have to look at what it's doing in the body. Mm-hmm. So when we take in too much sugar and carbohydrates, like I mentioned before, if we've taken in excess of what our body can use or store, then we have to start storing it as fat. And it's that simple. Whereas fat, fat generally doesn't get stored in the body. And if you've ever accidentally taken too much coconut oil, you oh, actually yeah. will know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> it makes it, it doesn't get stored, does it? No. <laughs> it's like, get me out of here, it says. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's the difference. You know, those calories act differently in the body. So we really don't have to fear fat. And, in fact, if we ever think, oh, can we eat too much fat? Well, generally not because fat self-regulates itself, you know. We feel full when we eat fat. And so it's very, very hard to overeat mm-hmm. fat. 
And, and this kind of regulation is uh, modulated through appetite. That means that a person who's eating yeah. a high-fat diet actually can sense the amount of food that they need much more acutely yeah. than someone who is going on the sugar binge like with their uh, yeah. insulin going up and down all the time, their blood sugar is fluctuating. So, um, Absolutely. Tune into our body a little bit more clearly, much more clearly, actually. Um, but this kind of um, adaptation that we have towards craving sweet things is uh, quite a big thing. I mean, it's been hacked by food manufacturers uh, constantly yeah. for throughout our lives, and they, you know, make things with mouthfeel and sweetness and a balance of fattiness and all that kind of stuff and saltiness, and uh, it hacks our biology right. and makes us want to crave and eat more. And uh, people, as they start transitioning out of a uh, traditional diet, or well, not traditional, conventional diet, I should say, and they start eating a low-carb, uh, high-fat diet, they miss the sweet stuff. And, um, you know, sometimes they reach for things like Atkins bars and that kind of stuff, which I'm completely against because I'm like you. I, mm. I'm always about whole foods and eating in a, in a whole way. Um, just um, natural foods in their natural packaging without preservatives and additives but there seems mm-hmm. to be some kind of uh, you know transition that people need to make um, removing that sweet craving on the way out of the yeah. low fat diet so they reach for things yeah. which you know we know aspartame is really really bad for us and that's not one of those mm-hmm. things that people just constantly i don't even have to talk to people about that anymore i don't have to say mm-hmm. you know, get up the aspartame but i get questions about stevia erythritol and xylitol quite a lot and i'm yeah. wondering what you think. Well, that's a great question. And actually, I'm finding that the low-carb movement in Australia is quite good with Giaspartame. I mean, there's a small percentage of people who will use it still. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the, in America, for example, it's very, very common. The low-carb movement over there, you know, just about everyone I find is using Aspartame. So wow. not only does that cause a lot of damage in the body, it's extremely toxic and... It actually has been shown to cause weight gain as well because it triggers hun- hunger. Mm. Wow. And the other problem with it is that we tend to for- we tend to store toxins in our fat cells, and aspartame is very, very toxic. And so, the more toxins we take in, we're going to have to try and store that in fat. And if we're very, very toxic, we're not going to want to get rid of fat. So, I mean, that's just a little. So that means that the body fights the fat loss out of fear of toxicity? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're protecting your organs from a serious toxin in your fat, you're not going to let go of the fat because you need it there. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, this is a a very, uh, you know, it's not a simple image then, you know, when we talk about these things because everyone obviously is individual and they're dealing with their toxicity levels and their hormones and the gut health issues yeah. and all that kind of stuff. So the, the advice around low-carb, high-fat is it's kind of a general one to give people an idea of where they could uh, start shifting or making shifts in their diet to reduce toxicity and increase nourishment in their body. And it is a journey of, of healing. And that's been you know my, my journey. Um, yeah. It's just interesting. I get a lot of questions. Most of our audience is female. And uh, we, we get asked uh, about low-carb, high-fat and there's this idea floating around um, that low-carb um, is actually bad for hormones, especially for females, that it's done for a long okay. term. And I'm wondering, is there any truth to that? And if it is, then okay. in what lens can we really view it? And how can we avoid this kind of damage that might actually occur from uh, too long or yeah. too, too prolonged uh, low-carb? I said, I... Well, before I enter that, I'll quickly mention the erythritol, xylitol. Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. We didn't, yeah, yeah. No, no, that's all right. Um, I got so passionate about the artificial uh, sweetness. So, stevia, I find, doesn't affect blood sugar. It doesn't affect insulin. And it's a natural plant. You know, I grow a plant in my backyard mm-hmm. that you can pick and eat if you, if you wish. But it's extremely yeah. sweet. Yeah. Uh, so that's my preferred sweetener. Erythritol and xylitol I don't recommend, and a lot of people in the low-carb world do use xylitol. However, it does affect our digestion, and just like you were talking about, I mean, a lot of uh, therapists, when they are low-carb, high-fat, and they're recommending uh, this for weight loss, they're not looking at the whole picture, but I tend to look at the whole picture because if we get healthy, 
that's when we're most likely to drop the weight. And digestion is so important in that picture. Yes. So this is why I don't recommend urethritol and Zaltol because it does affect our digestion. This stuff does not get absorbed by humans, which means that if you've got other food with it, that's probably going to affect the absorption of that. And that's why it can cause bloating and other yeah. sort of digestive symptoms as well. And xylitol as well, a lot of people don't know this, but if a dog accidentally gets a hold of, you know, something you've made with xylitol, it will kill it. So yeah. it's not the best thing to have around the house, especially if you have animals. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that I, I tell people that um, you always have to look at food with this lens, whether does it have a cellular structure, does it have yeah. like, um, a water content, or is, has it been recently yeah. alive, uh, is there a vitality in it? And anything that's like a white powder just doesn't take any of those boxes, you know. And um, also, like I, I have to say, like I did use xylitol on, on my journey. I'm not sure whether it slowed me down in terms of my healing, but it did sort mm-hmm. of support this kind of transition early on. And, yeah. Um, and it didn't do too You know, much some people use it that way. That's yeah. right. But, um, but now my views have changed on it because I believe yeah. in whole foods as being the most healthful yeah. way of eating. So yeah. Um, yeah. it might not be the worst thing for you. Uh, of course, um, you have, if you're using it, you just have to be very, very careful, tuned into your body. But I, I don't recommend anything that's sort of crystalline and white, you know. It's just not a good idea to, to use it. Um, especially yeah. there's some xylitol that's made from genetically modified corn and corn husks and things mm-hmm. like that. So we don't know where it's come from and you're supporting an industry that you shouldn't be. Absolutely. Um, but yeah. Maybe, yeah. So women's hormones. Should yeah. We do that now? All right, let's do that. Yeah. So, yes, with women's hormones, there's a lot of talk about the fact that low-carb diets can depress thyroid function and female hormones, etc. But the research doesn't support these theories. And in fact, we use low-carb, high-fat in our clinic to boost thyroid function. So, for example, we have a 12-week weight loss program that we do. And one of the goals of that program, and, you know, people come into the program wanting to lose weight, but what they don't realise is that we are boosting their thyroid function. We are reducing their insulin. We're reducing their blood sugar. Uh, we're healing their gut. So we do all of these things in conjunction because, like I said before, you know, healing the body is the way to actually lose weight in the long run. Yes. And so one of the things we focus on is uh, balancing the hormones. And we do find that low-carb, especially keto diet, will help boost thyroid function and rebalance the hormones. Okay, and so fact, the keto diet is, uh, can you explain what that is compared to like low yeah, carb? So the, keto, the keto diet is very low carb diet, for example, uh, and there's a number of varieties of it, but it will go very much lower in carbohydrates, so below 20 grams or so a day. And one of the reasons it's so beneficial is because, for example, you know, we find that about 50% of women in particular who first start low-carb, high-fat don't lose the weight. And then they say, well, it doesn't work for everyone. Well, that's not actually the case. Uh, what we find is that it does work with the right tweaking. For example, out of everyone who's come to us to our clinic with not having lost weight on low-carb, high-fat, and in some cases they've been doing the diet for one to two years even, uh, we've tested them and found that their insulin is still high. And so their insulin hasn't come down on a normal low-carb, high-fat diet. We need to reduce the carbohydrates even more to bring that down. Mm. And the reason that is is because when we are insulin resistant, we react differently to carbohydrates in general. That's why sometimes some people call it carbohydrate intolerance because, Mm. you know, there's been studies that show if you take insulin-resistant people and give them complex carbohydrates, they react completely differently to normal people who take in complex carbohydrates. So even the so-called good carbohydrates like your berries, etc., will spike glucose and insulin in an insulin-resistant person, whereas a normal person, a healthy person, you can happily eat berries and cream and you'll be fine. 
Right. So it comes down to individual tolerance and tweaking yeah. things down. So you start off with like a generally low carb diet, see how you feel. And if the weight loss is not happening after, say, what, a couple of weeks, then you start reducing the carbohydrates slowly from there to yeah. get to a sweeter spot or something like that. Yeah, you can definitely do that. I mean, I have some pretty clear instructions in one of my books called Bring Back the Fat on how to identify whether mm. you are insulin resistant, etc., and whether it would be beneficial to go on a keto diet as opposed to okay. a low-carb, high-fat diet. And one of the ways is you can actually just have your insulin tested, okay. uh, which is a very simple way of doing it. Oh, fantastic. So uh, we'll talk about the books maybe towards the end of the podcast. I just have uh, one more question, and um, yeah. which is... Um, Skinny people and low carb, high fat. <laughs> you know, those of, the, those of us who don't want to lose the weight uh, and they worry that they, if they go too low carb um, or they go low carb, that they will just become uh, too skinny and um, they, they won't feel healthy and that they, they might need more carbs in their diet or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. What have you seen around that? Well, interestingly, low-carb, high-fat to me is the optimal diet for everyone because it's if you are too thin, it will help you gain weight. If you are overweight, it will help you lose weight. It pretty much helps you come back to your optimal size mm. and your optimal health. And so that's the fantastic thing about it is that, you know, it's really a diet that's based on what we were designed to eat rather than what we're eating now yeah okay so you reach a homeostasis like a, a point of balance in mm. your body which is a healthy balance it won't make you too skinny is that is that right yeah that's generally right and okay. in fact it, it's very good at helping the body build pro, uh, build muscle etc so if you're a little bit under in muscle even if you're not exercising we find that putting people on an optimal diet will actually help them build muscle. So um, maybe they won't come to the beauty standards of today. You know, they might be, but they might feel a bit too skinny, but like the really good way of telling is just how good you feel in your body rather than just by judging yourself in, in the mirror. Actually, I do have one more question, which I, I'm so glad I remembered to ask. Uh, dairy. Now, this is, a, this is one of those things, like you, you use uh, quite a lot of dairy in your recipes, and uh, I love dairy as well, but sometimes I feel like, you know, there's this kind of idea, maybe from the paleo perspective or from um, the perspective of herbalists and nutritionists and, uh, you know, people who, who sort of frown upon dairy in the same way that they frown upon gluten, and they, they reckon that, say, casein and lactose are... Uh, really damaging and there's hormones uh, that are bioactive in the dairy products that will promote um, insulin-like growth factor and uh, promote cancer and things like that. And I'm just wondering Mm -hmm. what your perspective on that is because uh, I know you're a big fan. Well, that's a very interesting uh, question actually and an important one. And while, yes, I do use dairy, it it's become a big issue for a lot of people. So, for example, you know, a lot of people have a lot of gut damage from eating a lot of grains, etc. We get holes in the lining of our gut. And, you know, this is one of the things I was talking before about, mm. you know, our focus of healing the gut in the program, etc. But what happens then is we have little bits of healthy food get through that gut lining into the bloodstream and we create antibodies against them, etc. And so healthy food can become quite an irritant. And one of the first things to do that is dairy. And the other problem is that there's a lot of really highly processed dairy that's really not good for anyone. Mm -hmm. And that can create a a lot of intolerances, etc. So there's a lot of dairy intolerance out there. And many people don't know that they have dairy intolerance. But if we are intolerant to something, we should not be eating it for sure because it will irritate our gut. It will um, cause inflammation and digestive discomfort, etc., and hamper our digestion. So uh, it is possible to heal that the lining of the gut and then reintroduce it later in a lot of cases. Uh, but while we are reacting to it and we're intolerant to it, it is best not to have it 
The other thing is that people who can't tolerate dairy can generally tolerate butter okay. because butter has virtually no casein and lactose. And this is quite amazing because then people who are off dairy can actually have loads of butter, etc. And that makes low-carb, high-fat so much more durable yes. because when you're off butter, it makes it very hard to get enough fat, etc. and feel full and... Makes life very sad as well. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, right. Butter, butter does make everything better, I think. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's great to include the butter even with, if we're going dairy-free. What about the uh, hormonal aspect? Of, uh, oh, the hormonal aspect? Look, I, I, um, I haven't seen a lot of literature supporting that okay. it has, it's, it's an issue with hormones. Yes. Um, it's more of an issue if it's if it's become an intolerance. Okay. And so that's some kind of you know yeah. This is what probably vegan propaganda has sort of been promoting, yeah. and it's coming yeah. coming to our our worldview a, a little bit and creep in there. Um, because yeah, like you, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't know anything about the science that says that um, these um, animal hormones are actually bad for us in any way. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, they say similar things with eating meat, but I mean... Yes, that's right. Um, there's been no vegan society because um, they actually can't survive, you know. They um, may have been, but they never made it. That's yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> it actually makes... it. I actually used to be vegan, so, I mean, I can yeah. talk about this from a perspective of understanding yeah. why people do it because it's a lovely idea. However, it just doesn't work. And it's not based on um, nature. For example, you won't find anyone who lives in the bush who's a vegan because no. you can't actually survive. You know, no. and you wouldn't have found people living out in, you know, on the land a vegan because you can't survive. You're basically relying on agriculture, on mass farming, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, to actually do it. So. Yeah, so obviously back in the day, they, you know, people had to eat meat and they were, they were thriving. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I can't imagine a, uh, a mom with a young baby in the bush coming across some honeycomb and going, no, I'm going to eat that and, and, you know, get the energy to feed my child or, you know, yeah. you know having to eat the, the insects and the, um, the birds that they catch and all that going, no, no, I'm just going to try to find some dandelion yeah, uh, it's just not yeah. sustainable for people who are living. No. And um, the, their main calories do come from meat, and that's what they actually celebrate. Yeah. They they don't celebrate the carrot harvest and as much enthusiasm as they do when the, yeah. the buffalo's hunted. You know, this is where the big celebration takes place. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's just how humans were designed. Even if we don't like it that way, that's it. It's, you know, this is how we evolved to eat. Yeah. Uh, Christine, what a fantastic podcast. I really, really enjoyed talking to you. It was uh, like talking to an old friend uh, and being able to flesh out these topics that, um, you know, we see eye to eye on so many things and I'm really glad that you could articulate it with such clarity. Um, thank you so much. Can you tell us a little You're bit welcome. about where our listeners can find you and how they can connect with you, your books, all the things that you have coming up? Do you want to share a little bit about that? Sure. Well, my website is christinecroner.com. So that's C-R-O-N-A-U.com. And uh, I have a large group on Facebook as well, uh, so they can find me on Facebook. And, you know, we talk a lot. Of, I share every day something really interesting on Facebook, you know, some new information, etc. So that's uh, quite interesting. And I also have an Instagram account, although I tend to talk more about my uh, my little mini farm oh. <laughs> on Instagram. So if anyone wants to see what we're doing with our little mini farm, our chickens, we've got marimba puppies that we're raising now. So if anyone's seen the Oddball movie, uh, that's sort of dog that we have. So they're guardian dogs. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, supposed to guard your chickens. And your I'll go check that out. I'm following, following on Facebook but not on Instagram. So oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and then we have, so I've got three books. Uh, one is called Bring Back the Fat. Now, that's the one to read if you want to read about insulin resistance, if you want to lose weight, uh, etc. 
Then I have the Fat Revolution, which talks about the whole history of how we got into this mess. And it also talks about a lot of other myths. For example, is salt actually bad for us? Mm. Is the sun actually bad for us? Should we be drinking, you know, two or three litres a day? All of those sort of, there's a lot of myths out there. Yes. <laughs> so it talks about that. Then I have the cookbook. And then we have the 12-week weight loss program, which has been fantastic, especially for people who have been tra- having trouble losing weight on low-carb, high-fat, because like I mentioned before, around 50% of women won't lose weight straight away. Mm. And it does deal with the insulin resistance. It does heal the gut. It does rebalance the hormones and uh, also boost the thyroid. So we focus on all of those things. And... Yeah, I think that's all of it. That, that's it. We'll put some links in, in the show notes for the website and Facebook and Instagram. Guys, um, this is really valuable information and it's really clearly laid out and um, easy to understand and to follow, made practical. Um, it's a wonderful community as well. If you uh, follow online, make sure you do. And Thank you so much again and again to come coming on the show. Hopefully next time Joe will be with us. We were talking about yeah. how good the show is going to be anyway because we knew it already and uh, we thought that next time we'll get some uh, questions from our followers and then you can come yeah. on the show and just uh, chat. Maybe I'll I'll get out of the way and have you and Joe get get into that conversation together. But um, thank you so much for coming again and uh, we'll chat to you soon, Crystal. It's been a pleasure. No problem. Thanks. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.